You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. The number 42. Mean anything to you? Well, that's the iconic number immortalized by Jackie Robinson, who in 1947 broke through the impenetrable social barrier, becoming the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. Branch Rickey, the Brooklyn Dodgers president and general manager, first met Jackie Robinson in August of 1945, and he told Robinson that he wanted to sign him to a major league contract. Of all the Negro League players that Branch Rickey had to choose from, he focused on Jackie Robinson because he had learned that Robinson, like Rickey, was a devout Methodist. He knew, Ricky knew that to succeed, to be successful in breaking through this barrier of racism, it was going to require far more than outstanding fielding skills and a sweet swing at the plate. Jackie Robinson could be superhuman on the field, and it just wouldn't matter. In order to face the unrelenting abuse that Jackie Robinson would experience in town after town, after town, what was required was a supernatural inner strength that could only come from the resources of a deep personal faith worked out in an exceptional character. That meeting is depicted in the film 42. Perhaps you've seen it, or if you haven't seen it, you've probably seen the preview, the trailer uh, of that film. And in the scene depicting this meeting, Branch Rickey reads Jesus' words, the very words that we're going to consider tonight. He reads, But whoever shall smite thee on the cheek, turn to him the other also. And Jackie Robinson responds a bit defensively. He says, So you want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? And Branch Rickey responds, No, I want a player who has the guts not to fight back. And a few moments later, as the realization of what Mr. Ricky is proposing fully sets in, Jackie, speaking as if to himself, kind of leaning bent over a chair, looking as if he's about to be sick, he says, I'm going to have to live the sermon. I'm going to have to live the sermon. So here we are in the third week of our journey into the sermon, the sermon that Jackie Robinson spoke of, the Sermon on the Mount. And this same question confronts us. Is this really a sermon we're called to live? Or is it merely a set of principles to admire? If you're like me, you'd prefer to keep this sermon in the realm of the impractical, the ideal, the, an, a utopian ethic in a sense. Especially this passage that we're facing into tonight. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. And then to ratchet it up just another impossible notch. Love your enemies. You know, the irony of my standing before you tonight preaching from this text is almost hilarious if it wasn't so challenging. I mean, of all the prospective pastors on our extraordinary team that might be available to preach this passage, 
It has fallen on me. The old, grizzled, former hockey player. I have the challenge of preaching about turning the other cheek and loving our enemies. And I got to tell you, there's not a lot of turning the other cheek in my past. I don't have a lot of personal experience with loving my enemies. In fact, if I were to catalog for you some of the sheer brutality that I've involved myself in in all these years on the ice, well, let's just say there's been a lot of high sticks a lot of high elbows, and a number of dropped gloves. I mean, folks, I didn't get this ugly by accident. (laughs) I worked on this. This comes from brutality year after year after year. The sheer irony of me preaching from this text is absolutely silly. And so with that confession as a prelude, let's open our Bibles to the passage for this evening. Turn with me, if you wish, or if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, starting at verse 38. You can find it at the bottom of the page, near the bottom of the page, on page 786 in those black Bibles there in the pews. And as you get to that spot, let's just pause for a moment to pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us into this text and that you would teach us what you have for us in it. And then, Holy Spirit, would you lead us from this text and send us out into the world in which you love, that we might be the people that you've designed us to be, that we might be empowered to be sent as ones who live for the good of the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me read this text for you. Jesus is preaching. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not set yourself against an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. And then Jesus continues. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect then, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The title of our series is The Savior on the Mount. And in this title, our attention is appropriately drawn to the who of this sermon as well as to the what. And I really appreciate how George has framed this series to, through two questions that we're called to explore. And the first question is, who is the Savior behind this sermon? And the second question is, how does he invite us to live into this good news? 
and share in his ongoing ministry in the world. And when you consider the who of the sermon, it immediately becomes clear that this message is not an impossible ethic to be aspired to in the sweet by and by. Jesus isn't promoting a pie-in-the-sky philosophy. From Jesus' mouth, this sermon is a call to a new way of life. The values and call to obedience laid out in this sermon describes a new community, a new society inaugurated by and centered in the person of Jesus. It's not a a random list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus Christ. It defines a call to an alternative community, different in almost every way from the social and political reality in which the disciples were living. Jesus is defining the character and characteristics of a people. A people who still rooted in the law, but living in a different relationship to it because of the one who's standing before them preaching this message. So you can't and I can't maintain our spiritual stiff-arm distance from this excessively demanding ethic under the impression or the presumption that is something that is just way beyond us. And yet we read these words, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies. And it's hard to avoid the conclusion that this is way beyond us. How do we resolve this tension? How do we reconcile this notion? Well, last week, George made a brilliant Observation. Don't tell him I said that, because we're trying to we're trying to keep him a little humble around here. With great insight, George said that the difference between a scribe and a disciple is that a scribe relates directly to a law to the law, but a disciple relates to the law through a person, the person of Jesus Christ. If we face into this sermon and we think it's about us and our will, and our determination, and our performance, then we're relating to this law just like a scribe or a Pharisee. But if we face into the sermon and realize that it's about Jesus and his righteousness, and it's about a community that he is forming, then we have a way in. We enter into obedience to the demands of the sermon in and through the Savior. It is only through living a life yielded to the Savior and given to one another in community that we have any hope to experience the good news of this teaching in our lives. Stanley Hauerwas, a great contemporary theologian, he writes, What cannot be forgotten is that the one who preaches this sermon is the Son of God. That is, he is the Messiah. He's making all things new. The sermon is the reality of the new age made possible in time through him. Our only hope of living into this ethic of loving our enemies is rooted in the one whose entire life's focus was enemy love. In God's single greatest act of self-disclosure ever, God loves his enemy world. He loves this world that lives in fundamental opposition and otherness to him.
God loves this enemy world so much that he gave his own son. The apostle Paul writes, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved? Will we be transformed through his life? It is the character of the Savior that makes it possible to live into the transformation that would allow us to enter into this invitation. So that is the who of the sermon. None other than the one who embodies the enemy love to which he calls us. So let's pivot to the second question. Who what, or what is this good news of the Savior's sermon to which we're invited to live? And I'm convinced that the answer to that question is this, that we're invited into embracing and ex- expressing an extravagant generosity. Now that might seem now that that might not seem immediately obvious from a first read uh, of this text. So let's just take a minute and break it down. This passage that we're re- we've read tonight begins with Jesus quoting from Leviticus twenty four twenty. He says, "You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth." And back at the time of the formation of the law, this notion of justice was a significant departure from the justice code of those peoples that the Israelis lived among. The Canaanites abided by a different code. They operated by a different ethic. And it went something like this. You steal a sheep from me, and I'm coming after your entire herd. You kill my son, I take out your entire family. They were mafia way before the mafia. And the Canaanites, the code of the Canaanites was defined as disproportional retribution. Disproportional retribution. Now the law defined a different calculation. It constrained social relations and it redefined justice. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The victim was constrained to execute their retribution in proportion to the offense. Revenge was boundaried. Retaliation was constrained. And this proportional retribution was a distinctly different form of justice. It set the Israeli community apart among the people around it. It was an ethical advance in human relations and society. And that ethic has informed the Western, our Western civilization's justice system for hundreds and hundreds of years. However, in Jesus' sermon, he revolutionizes these terms of social relationship. He says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You have heard it said, love your neighbor but hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. As is his custom, Jesus turns everything upside down. He challenges the notion of proportionality, the perfectly reasonable social conventions of proportional retribution and reciprocal love. 
And he invites us to face into our most difficult relationships, our enemy, with disproportionate love. The good news to which Jesus invites us is to a radical generosity. An unreasonable, indiscriminate, uncalculating, unconditional, disproportionate love for our enemies. He calls us to live into the seemingly impossible to live creatively and generously towards those who offend us by their opposition, towards those who offend us by their differentness, their otherness. And this is the ethos to which we're invited. And we all know that this is a difficult path. It's spiritually demanding. Courage is required. Jesus makes it clear that enemy love is not a retreat. Enemy love requires confrontation. Jesus makes it clear that enemy love is not a way of passivity, a way of cheap grace, of easy forgiveness, of, hey, come and trample all over me-ness. We all know that retreat in the face of opposition or otherness is much easier than facing into it. Bailing out in the face of opposition is a lot easier than standing your ground and leaning in. Leaning in requires a courageous and strenuous vulnerability that is completely unnatural. In this text, Jesus gives us four examples, these four little confrontations as case studies. The insulting slap across the face the frivolous lawsuit, the exploitive soldier, the irresponsible borrower. And each of these enemies is responded to with creative surprise. Turn the other cheek. Give your coat also. Go the extra mile. Give without hesitation. In response to insult and opposition, grace is exposed, and it is a surprise. This cuts against the grain of our every inclination. It is a radical reversal of social relations. It's a call to generous creativity, to disproportionate love, to live a surprising life of grace exposed. One of my very favorite pieces of art in the whole world is the novel Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. It's an incredible piece of work. And every single iteration of that work, the the musical, the stage musical, and there's been two films made, and the most recent film is an absolute masterpiece. It immediately became my favorite movie, the musical film version of Les Miserables. How many of you have seen Les Miserables? If you haven't seen it, you've got to get out and see it. It is absolutely a spectacular piece of work. Well, there's a scene in that film. And you obviously you all know the story and you've seen it. But there's a scene in this film uh, towards the beginning. And you all know the story. It's the story of this uh, ex-convict of Jean Valjean. Early in the, in the film, he's on the road and he's facing uh, abuse and discrimination at every term. And finally, he arrives at this mountaintop monastery. And he 
is met by this uh, bishop, Monsignor Bienvenu, which if you know French is a wonderful name for a bishop. Bienvenu means welcome. Bishop welcome. Bishop hospitality. And that's exactly who this bishop is. He picks up Jean Valjean, invites him into the monastery, feeds him a meal on this spectacular uh, silver settings, these silver settings. He invites them, invites Jean Valjean to spend the night, and in the course of the night, Jean Valjean can't help it. He can't resist himself. He gets up in the middle of the night, packs away all this silver, and steals it. He makes off with it. The next day, the French police, the gendarmes, drag Jean Valjean back to Bishop, uh, Bishop Welcome, Bishop Hospitality. And he pre- they throw Jean Valjean down on the ground, fully expecting that justice will be administered here. And what happens? Grace is exposed. Bishop, Vien, uh, Bishop Bienvenu says, My friend Jean Valjean, welcome back. I see that you have the silver that I gave you. But my friend, you have forgotten the silver candlesticks that I also have for you. Surprise. Grace exposed. And, he, and Bishop Bienvenu dismisses the gendarmes. And in a moment of... Uh, a private moment before between Bienvenu and Jean Valjean. He looks into Jean Valjean's eyes and says, My friend, I have bought your soul, and I have given it to God. Go from this place in a way different than you came. Use these things that I've given you for good and not for evil. And Jean Valjean's life is completely transformed. His way is completely different from that moment on. Surprise by grace. Disproportionate love in the face of an enemy. This wayward thief. Well, this challenge, the challenge of this invitation seems daunting. You know, this is one of those uh, invitations to good news that doesn't necessarily always feel like good news. And when I reflect on the reality of my life, I'm confronted with my failure in this invitation. I mean, we're all faced with enemies every single day. Those who oppose us in myriad ways. The obnoxious co-worker who's out to undercut us at every opportunity. The irresponsible roommate who creates havoc in our living situation. The discord of an obstinate child or an obstinate parent or an obstinate spouse. The repugnant neighbor whose habits or lifestyle offends us. The persistent demoralization that comes from the constant conflict with a former spouse. We all have, uh, you can all add to that list. My particular favorite is the person that's driving in front of me who's in my way. And it always seems like there's a person in front of me who's in my way. How often our responses lack generosity and creativity. But Jesus points us in the direction of hope. As we face into an enemy love opportunity, he invites us to do something very concrete, very tangible. He invites us to pray. Look again at this text in verses 44 and 45. He says, love your enemies and pray for those 
who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The surest path toward enemy love is to pray. And there's something interesting in this invitation to pray. The word that's used here in the Greek, the full meaning of this Greek word for the word for, pray for, is the notion of praying on behalf of. Praying as if you're an advocate for. To pray for our enemies is to seek the gift of a new angle, a new perspective on them, and for the power to think better of them than we do, and the power to act better toward them than we do. And when we pray for our enemy, we're essentially praying for a conversion within us. We're praying for the grace of creativity and generosity. Earlier in the sermon, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. And with this distinction, he calls us as a community of disciples to a peculiarity, a distinctiveness that brings out the best in this world in which we live. It's a deep goodness to which we're called. It confers upon us a sense of usefulness, a sense of mission, a sense of purpose. And what this enemy love passage suggests is that what makes Christians salty or distinctive or useful in the world is our determination to break the world's code of love for love, good for good, evil for evil, reciprocity. We are called to a disproportionate love, an against-the-grain love. It is our countercultural love for the undeserving, the unlovable, the undesirable other, even the positively hostile. This is what makes us recognizably Christian. And I grieve the fact that the world so rarely experiences that distinctiveness. This generous contrariness, this nonconformity, is the only truly revolutionary and subversive activity in the world. Dr. Rodney Stark is a professor. In fact, he taught for 32 years here at the University of Washington until 2004. He's a uh, historian, and his specialty is the sociology of religion. And he wrote an extraordinary book entitled The Rise of Christianity. And at the end, he makes this really interesting point. He says, as I conclude this study, I find it necessary to confront what appears to me to be the ultimate factor in the rise of Christianity. The simple phrase... For God so loved the world would have puzzled an educated pagan. And the notion that the gods care how we treat one another would have been dismissed as patently absurd. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues. That a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. This was revolutionary stuff. Indeed, it was the cultural basis for the revitalization of the Roman world groaning under a host of miseries. 
Our world today groans under a host of miseries. The fresh horror of Boston reminds us that there is a deep brokenness and an indiscriminate evil at work. And our only hope is to courageously and vulnerably meet it with an indiscriminate and disproportionate love. A love which is only possible because of the one who lives within us and beyond us, inviting us to participate with him in his healing work in the world. That is our invitation. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Spirit who makes it possible that we would enter into this invitation, this invitation to grace, this invitation to generous, creative, disproportionate love. Lord, I pray that you would work that into our lives this week and that you would lead us to work it out in our lives, in our relationships that you lead us into throughout this week. Thank you for the gift of your grace in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.